All right. Good morning, Mercy family. Good morning. morning. Hey, I do want to say happy Memorial Day weekend uh, to you. You know, President Lincoln in his Gettysburg Address called dying in service to one's country the last full measure of devotion. And um, if you're a military family, you just understand the sacrifice. It's this huge sacrifice for the whole family. Uh, If you're not in a military family, it's just really hard to get a hold of. And especially uh, if you're one who has lost a family member in service, I've shepherded a few families through that really hard uh, situation. And I just want you to know we honor you, join our country in honoring you this weekend, and also that we have uh, counseling and stuff like that available for you. That's right. Um, We do. We have counseling centers available for you and would love to connect you if you are going through that uh, present or have just never dealt with it. With that said, uh, I want to get us into God's word. Ruth chapter 4. As you're turning there, let me pray for our time in God's word this morning. Father, thank you for the gift, the gift of scripture where you reveal yourself to us. What a gift. And so we say thank you. God, would you open our eyes, open our eyes to who you are, to your great redeeming love. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, chapter four of Ruth. If you're new with the Bible, it's about eight books in. It's only four chapters long, this book of Ruth. This is a great starter for you. If you've never read a whole book of the Bible, you could knock that out this afternoon in 15 minutes, all right? And say, yeah, I've read a book of the Bible, all right? Just because it's short, though, doesn't mean it is shallow. Listen, there are the depths of God's love are on display in full, and that's what we've been seeing over the course of our time here in the book of Ruth. We're going to be in this one chapter, both this week and next week. It's the final chapter in this book, and it draws out the main theme of Ruth so powerfully I just think we need two weeks in it. <laughs> I just need, we, uh, we need two weeks to sit down and fully embrace the message for us. Here's the main idea for today. It might end up just being the main idea for next week too. I don't know yet, all right? But here it is. The redeeming love of God is for you. It's for your past, it's for your present, and it's for your future. The redeeming love of God. That's the theme today. And my prayer is that your heart will be kind of like a, um, like a morning campfire. All right, I know we're kind of exiting out of, although we got a little bit of cool temperatures this morning, we're kind of exiting out of campfire season. But if you've ever done a campfire at night and then you wake up in the morning, there are these coals. There's no flames anymore, but there are these coals that are there kind of smoldering. And all you got to do is put a little bit of a wind on it, right? You just got to fan it a little bit and then the flames will come back up, right? Um, for some of you, your love for God It's probably like some of those coals that have been smoldering for a while and the flame's been out, maybe for a little while, maybe for a long time. But the fire isn't all the way gone. You just haven't felt active flames. And I hope seeing God's redeeming love and Ruth 4 lights afresh, that it's that morning campfire that fan comes along and lights it up for you and you get a fresh fire in your own heart for the Lord. For others, I hope that it ignites a flame that's never been there before. Here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna walk us through the scene that unfolds We're just going to observe the text together, and then I'm going to show you how God's redeeming love is for your past. It's for your present right now, and it's for your future. So we'll start in verse 1 of chapter 4, and we'll just observe the scene, unpack it a little bit, explain some things that happen, and then we'll get going. You guys ready? Let's do it. Yes, 
applauding scripture, extra points and whatever point system we have here, okay? That's awesome. All right, verse one, Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. Soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. Boaz said, come over here, sit down. So he went over and sat down. Okay, let's get some context, especially if you're new. You're like, who is Boaz? Who's he talking to? All right, can't tell you everything. Like I said, it's a short story. You can go back. You can read up later, okay? But a little bit of a summary. Boaz is our protagonist in this story. He's a middle-aged farmer who's lived in the same town his whole life. The town is called Bethlehem. Yes, that Bethlehem, all right? He has a great reputation as a God-honoring man and a great boss, and he's got a love interest, a widow named Ruth. Ruth is not from Bethlehem. She's moved here from another country. She moved from Moab. She moved because her mother-in-law, Naomi, who is also a widow, is from Bethlehem. This is Naomi's hometown. And when Naomi decided to go home, Ruth said, you know what? I'm going with you. Your people are going to be my people. Your God's going to be my God. Well, then we learn that Boaz happens to be one of Naomi's, and here's the term that we, we unpacked a couple weeks ago, kinsman redeemers, which is a Jewish legal term that means there's a guy who basically, if, if your relative um, dies and leaves behind a widow, if you're the kinsman redeemer, that means you have legal dibs to marry her, okay? Uh, we'll see more about that in chapter four. All that to say, as Boaz and Ruth fall in love, it seems like everything's heading to marriage, except there's a closer relative we learned last week who has dibs before Boaz. Now, please, if you're like, I cannot believe you're saying dibs when it applies to marriage, all right, just chill out a little bit. That's me contextualizing the middle schoolers who may not understand first right of refusal, all right? So dibs it is. So Ruth... Ruth proposes marriage to Boaz because she's a go-getter, all right? She's not waiting around. And Boaz says, well, first, I got to talk to the guy who's in line in front of me. That's the guy that has just walked over and Boaz has said, all right, come here and sit down. Now you're caught up, ready for this scene to unfold, all right? That's not the only one he calls over, though. Verse 2, Boaz took 10 men of the town's elders and said, hey, you guys come sit here, too. So they sat down. See, what's happening is every step of the way, Boaz, he's trying to be above reproach. These 10 elders are like, were these guys just around the gate that Boaz is sitting at? Yes. <laughs> For you and I, gates are things that you go through or you make sure it shut so your dog doesn't run down the street, right? That's us. But it's very different here. In ancient cities, the gate represents the center of commerce, business, kind of a social center as well, because you had homes that were just all on top of each other in these little towns. The streets were a little more like alleys, right? So the only place that was actually a large open common area was right there by the gate. And so the elders of the town would kind of hang there in order to oversee the town. And so Boaz calls over 10 guys so that there are ample witnesses to the integrity of Boaz's attempt to uphold the law of God. That's a huge, that is a theme of Boaz's life. He's gonna do everything he can to uphold God's law. He trusts his God and the law that his God has given him, all right? So then verse three, all right, here's what Boaz says. He said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. That's Naomi's dead husband, all right? I thought I should inform you Buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. 
If you want to redeem it, do it. That's what he's doing. Buy it back, redeem it. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know, because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it, and I am next after you. Now, here's what gets me. What stands out so obviously right there in verses three and four is that Boaz doesn't mention Ruth. He's talking about a plot of land. Now, it's tough to know whether this is a strategy Boaz is using to try and discern this guy's motives because he may not know him. Maybe he wants to leave Ruth out entirely so that Ruth's um, being a part of this doesn't sway this man. We don't know. We know Boaz isn't a young guy. He's been through his share of negotiations, so it's safe to assume he knows how to negotiate in a way that is fair and honest and yet very shrewd as well. Well, the Redeemer responds. I want to redeem it, he answered. Oh, now that's a setback for Boaz. As you're going to see in a second that with this land comes Ruth. That's the way it worked at this time. And Boaz wants to marry Ruth. But Boaz's faithfulness to his God goes before his personal desires. And he submits his desires. He trusts God with what he wants. He's like, God has laid out a law. He's laid out a way that things are to work. And I trust that I'll flourish in that. And so I'm going to submit myself to that. He wants to marry her, but not that way, not deceitfully. So he says, verse five, then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from Naomi, you will acquire Ruth the Moabitess the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate that man's name on his property. He trusts God. It would be dishonoring to God to violate God's law in order to be with Ruth. You only, you only do that. You only take the step that he takes if you trust the Lord. The world says, satisfy the flesh. Satisfy the desires of the flesh. Hollywood tells Boaz to go and follow his heart, right? To sneak off with Ruth when he hears, I want to redeem it. No, he's going to sneak off, grab Ruth, they'll ride into the sunset. Can't you see that? The music intensifies. Boaz is played by like Sterling Brown or something like that. Like some guy that's just got really an intense look, you know, and he's looking lovingly at her. He's like, I'll meet you back at the threshing floor. You can just feel that scene unfolding, sells everything, and they live on love. So dumb. <laughs> that's not Boaz. Boaz is smart, he's wise, and above all, he is a God-honoring man. He trusts his God, and he does not compromise his character or her character to satisfy his desires, even when things look like it's going to go away that he doesn't want it to. So he wants to make sure this guy knows what he's getting into. This land comes with a responsibility. Ruth is a widow of the rightful owner of the land. Her dead husband's name was Malon. And whoever redeems this land has the responsibility to marry Ruth and provide an heir. Whoever Ruth's first son is going to be with her new husband will also, in legal, legal terms, be the son of her dead husband. So in effect, the land will be that son's land when he grows up. And he'll be an heir to whatever, not only that land, but whenever, you know, his biological father, this Redeemer guy, he'll get some of that as well. Well, the Redeemer replied, verse 6, no, 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 no. <laughs> I know about that. <laughs> no, I can't redeem it myself or I will ruin my own inheritance. So you take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. Now, I don't want to ruin my own inheritance. He's concerned about his legacy. 
about his own name. And instead of sacrificing himself for another, he makes an attempt to preserve his own legacy. And in a great stroke of ironic warning to us who would do the same, there is no record of this man's name anywhere. Anywhere. No legacy. Y'all, self-sacrifice always hurts. It is always costly. It's going to be sacrificial to have to buy the land, right? You got to buy this land and then it's just going to go back. You're going to get anything long-term out of this. And what I want to make abundantly clear is that self-preservation is far more costly. When you trust God and you sacrifice your desires in order to follow his commands, you will lose out on things here. You will. To redeem the land costs money. No long-run gain here. But to preserve yourself, your wealth, your comforts, will likely mean you will lose out on being a part of God's redemptive purposes in the world. The crazy thing about generosity towards God and his mission is that you end up receiving way more than you ever give as you get caught up in what he is doing. Now, look, we don't know this man's heart. We aren't told his motivations, just his words, but his words are deeply revealing. And oh, did he miss out on God's story because he was so caught up in his own. That step of self-sacrifice I pause here because it's probably the hardest step for the Western church to take. Will we slay the idol of comfort with the sword of scripture and give ourselves radically to carrying out God's purposes in the world, no matter the cost? Will redeeming love be our theme even when, especially when it costs us? When it costs us. Well, we keep going. Verse 7 we start to get a little bit of unpacking of what's going on here and how they make the deal. So I'm going to read 7 all the way through. Uh, we'll go for a bit here through 11. At an earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. So the redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, here you go. Buy back the property yourself. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, all right, you are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Chilion, and Malon. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property so that his name will not disappear among his relatives from the gate of his hometown. You are witnesses today. And all the people who were at the city gate, including the elders, said, we are witnesses then what happens next is the people don't just say we're witnesses. I love this. This is like the people of God and how I think we as the people of God should work a little bit more. They offer two specific blessings over Boaz that connect him to the legacy of God's redeeming love throughout their generations, throughout their past. Let's speak blessing over him. Here's the first one. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Epathra and your name well-known in Bethlehem. And here's the deal. The people in Bethlehem are descendants of Judah, son of Leah. From Leah and Rachel came the 12 tribes of Israel. Now Ruth was unable to have kids. All 10 years she was out in Moab. She was barren like Rachel. Like Boaz knows that story, just like 
Rachel. But after many years, Genesis 30, 22, God remembered Rachel and she bore a son named Joseph who became the means by which God saved the people of Israel at the end of Genesis. It's like the last 12 chapters of Genesis or Joseph's story. This is a prayer for God to bless Ruth. It's almost just saying God has remembered Ruth and may he bless her with children. It's a prayer. I mean, <laughs> who was in your house, you know, like Rachel and Leah, that's like a prayer to bless Boaz with a baseball team's worth of sons. That's what that prayer is, right? May you have many sons. May God bless the house of, Moaz, of Boaz for the kindness and generosity he's showing to this widow. Then, verse 12, they add a second one. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this woman. Well, now they're referencing something we have in Genesis 38, the house of Perez. And Boaz knows that guy. As soon as they say that name, he's like, oh yeah, that makes sense because Boaz, because Perez is his great, 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 great granddaddy. All right, this is like family tree we're talking about now. Tamar's story bears similarities to Ruth, primarily in that they were both widows who the Lord brought redemption to later in life. The son that Tamar bore to Judah, after being a widow with no children, she was in a place she wasn't sure she would have a son, especially as she grew older, but the Lord vindicated her and provided for her. And her son Perez would go on to have children, and the line of Judah would continue down through him to Boaz. Now, we're going to talk more ne next week about Boaz's history when we finish up. The, Ruth is fascinating. It finishes up with a genealogy that's so powerful. But in short, the elders are saying, just like God remembered Rachel, and God remembered Tamar, just like what started in darkness in Perez's life became God's great work of redemption to build a family that would bless many generations, may he give you that same blessing. May he bless you with children, and may many people, many people be blessed by them. Oh, they have no idea how much God is going to answer that prayer. No idea. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife. He slept with her and the Lord granted conception to her and she gave birth to a son. Now we're not told how much time has passed here. That's not important. What we know is that the Lord gave her a son. The Lord has redeemed her by giving her, that's a, that's a big thing in this time right here, giving her a son to perpetuate the family and everything else that we just read about. The Lord has redeemed her. And then the story wraps up by circling back to the woman that it started with back in chapter one. The women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name be well known in Israel. Think about Naomi, lost her husband, lost her two sons. She traveled back home, she started out as... <laughs> This story, she called herself bitter, right? And here she is holding, holding a son, holding what would be redemption for her. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons and all the daughters-in-law in here are like, yup. <laughs> that daughter-in-law has given birth to him. Naomi took the child placed him on her lap, and became like a mother to him. And the neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. 
Now, by the way, a son being born to Naomi, that's not them like ignoring Ruth. Obviously, Ruth's the mom. Ruth just got this incredible compliment, better than seven sons. What they're acknowledging is that Naomi's sons had died without any sons of their own. And this grandson is God's redeeming love to her. And then we get this tiny little line of massive importance. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Like, we'll see this more next week when we finish up chapter four. But what you see is the book of Ruth is actually, listen, a historical account of something that actually happened in David's lineage. It's been passed down by Boaz to Obed to Jesse to David, probably written by Solomon during his reign, so that generation after generation could remember to trust the redeeming love of God. I told you, we see how this story, we look at it and then we'd see how God's redeeming love is for you. So let's just jump into it for your past, present, and future. Here's how God's redeeming love is for your past. God's redeeming love redeems your past. He redeems it. When the Bible says redeem, it means take something that originally had a good purpose, but then something went wrong. It got dark, it veered off course, maybe on purpose, maybe not. Naomi went to Moab to live with her husband, leaving Israel to go to Moab. That was symbolic of leaving God. They left for another land with other gods and hoped that they could find better life there. And it got dark in Moab. So dark, she renames herself bitter. That's just chapter one. God had a redemption plan for Naomi. Her bitter end was actually a new beginning. She came home to Bethlehem, home to God, and she didn't know how everything would work out when she came home to God. She returned to God and his people without knowing what would happen, and God blessed her as she returns. God provided for her. God took, listen to me, God took her past and redeemed it. And Moab, her son Malon, met and married Ruth. And you can only imagine every day when Naomi looks at Ruth, who is faithfully loving her and caring for her at the same time, she sees her dead son. She sees a Moabite and a reminder that they had gone into a foreign land. And yet, the townswomen say here in chapter four, Ruth is better to her than seven sons. Speaking of Ruth, God redeemed her past. Unable to have children, her entire marriage in Moab, and yet now God gives her a son. She was an outsider that God brought close because he loves redeeming the outsider. He loves redeeming the outsider and then showing off his grace to everyone else through the outsider. In fact, I have seen in my ministry time, one of God's favorite ways, it seems like, to bless the insider is by redeeming the outsider, And he redeems the outsider and the insiders get reminded of how much grace God has to give, even now. God's redeeming love redeems our past. Man, I got no idea what you walked in here with today. One thing I've learned is that everybody has baggage. We carry it with us. We We all got stories. Maybe you're a little like Naomi coming back after years away. Maybe you're like Ruth. God and his people are totally new to you. The story of the gospel is that no matter your story, the redeeming love of Jesus Christ can redeem you, can restore you, and can make you whole. So let me speak this truth over you. Maybe it's the only thing some of y'all walk out here with today. In Christ, 
you are not your past. In Christ, you are not your past. That's the story of the gospel. It's the story of the prodigal son who, despite his sin, comes back home and finds redemption in the father's loving, waiting arms. It's the story of Zacchaeus. It's the story of the tax collector. It's the story of the woman with the alabaster flask of the thief on the cross who finds redemption in Jesus' forgiving love. It's the story of Lydia in Acts 16. It's the story of the servant girl who's demon-possessed in Acts 16. It's the story of the apostle Paul who finds redemption on the road to Damascus after all those days persecuting Christians. The great hope of the gospel is that the redeeming love of God is still available for you today. In Christ, you are not your past. You are not your past. So whether you're a teenager with a short record or you're much older with a longer record, 1 John 1.7 says, the blood of Jesus Christ washes away all sin. Not some sin. Not most of it except for that really bad stuff that you can't seem to own up. No, no, no. All sin. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sin from us. So I want to implore you, come back to the foot of the cross Don't see yourself by your sin. I believe in the power of God to change people right where they sit right now. And I think it takes a lifetime to fully appreciate it, but the gospel is a gift of grace that you receive right now in full. In Christ, you're not your past. Let's talk about your present. God's redeeming love sustains you in the present. We covered it a lot last week. I'm not going to revisit it too much, but for Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, each of them chose to trust God at his word and then take steps that demonstrated that trust. Naomi and Ruth trust God's law about this provision of a a possible redeemer that God has worked into this. God's law gives them hope. It's built in. It is still built in. God's law laid out in scripture is for, gives you hope if you'll believe in it. Ruth trusts God. She proposes to Boaz. Boaz trusts God, has this conversation with this guy, which means he may never get to marry Ruth. But Boaz had seen the Lord bless Ruth already, and he trusts the God who had sustained her in chapter two. The God who prompted her to propose in chapter three is not going to now leave her or him in chapter four. He trusted God. He took a step. One of the great misses a lot of Christians experience is they trust that God will only redeem their past. Like, okay, I'll trust God. He redeems my past, but then not trust him with your present or your future. Lamentations 3 says the mercies of God are new every morning. That's for trusting him every day. Great is his faithfulness. When you become a Christian, God himself in the form of the Holy Spirit comes and lives with you. That's what the Holy Spirit is. It's God living with you. Guiding you, comforting you, sustaining you moment by moment. That's why 1 Thessalonians 5 says, pray without ceasing. It's because God is with you without ceasing. I want to challenge you to open up God's word every day. Spend time in prayer. Pray to him with your Bible open. Talk to him. Get into community. That's what the church is. It's just God's mouthpiece to one another. It's just us reciting God's promises to one another. It's following the Holy Spirit together. And sometimes God prompts one of us to say, you know what, Spence, Jack over there needs the hope of Christ today. He needs to be reminded that my love is going to sustain him for what's in front of him today. Go tell him. Or you know what, Jessica, 
You need to go tell her that she needs to be reminded that the love of God, the redeeming love of God, means she is not her past. Go and tell her. That's what we do here. Y'all, we need to start about 20 new community groups for Mercy Church by August. I know so many of y'all are brand new to our church. Listen to me, so what? Let's just make the plunge together. Don't waffle. There is a battle for believing the redeeming love of God will sustain us, and that battle is raging right now. So get in here and get to work. God's love will sustain you in the present as you step out and trust him. And whether it works out, listen, by the way, I should say, whether it works out according to your expectations or not, it's not what's important here. What's important is that you trust him and watch him prove to be faithful. He is faithful to his purposes, not to your expectations. But he is so good. He is so good. And I promise you his purposes are better than your expectations. So trust him. Walk forward. Let's do it together. Speaking of expectations, let's talk about the future. The redeeming love of God blesses future generations through present faithfulness. Last line of the story is remarkable. It's kind of like, I can almost envision it as a bunch of kids gathered around. Um, I remember Joseph when he kicked off the series. I was talking about him gathering around with his, with his son, um, reading a book, and because Ruth feels like this story kind of thing. And I can almost imagine um, a bunch of kids gathering around, listening to Grandpa David tell a story, right? And he tells us these three people, and, and there's Moab and Bethlehem, and those are familiar things to these kids. And then we hear the tragedy of Naomi, we hear the courage of Ruth. We hear this everyday guy, Boaz, who's going to be the hero. And we're like, oh, I want to be like Boaz, a little boy. So like, I want to be like Boaz, right? Um, and we hear about the unrequited love of Ruth and Boaz. But then they actually do get married in the end. And right before what we expect is Grandpa David to say, and they lived happily ever after. He says, and they had a son and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, who's my dad. And all the grandkids are like, wait, this happened? Like, this is real? And David says, yes, all of us are sitting here in this palace only because of the faithfulness of my great-grandpa, Boaz. He trusted God, and God multiplied his faithfulness, and God multiplied my great-grandma Ruth's faithfulness. And King David looks at these children and says, you have no idea what your faithfulness today, no idea what God will use that to turn it into tomorrow. You have no idea. God's way of bringing his redeeming love to bear on the future is through present steps of faithfulness today. Church, I want to call you to it. And listen, I want to remind you of who the chief example of this is, who makes it possible, and that's Christ, who took the faithful step of not letting the cup pass from him. If you remember the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, no, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And in a great act of faithfulness, man, he went up on the cross and he paid the price for your sins and for mine so that we could be redeemed. So that we could be redeemed from our sin, which we were bought back by God, made whole, and are now reconciled with God the Father. Oh, through one man, Romans would tell us, all were made righteous. You will not have that power. That power is reserved only for Jesus, only for him. You cannot make others righteous. You can't even make yourself righteous. But you can receive the righteousness of Christ today. 
You can receive it today and then walk with your God who will walk with you, who will supply not only forgiveness, but power, strength, comfort to walk with him. And he will bless others, not just around you right now, but future generations. I have watched generations change. Y'all, generations change by simple steps of faithfulness. Think about myself. I went to student camp as a, I think, ninth grader one summer, and a couple of volunteers at our church who had really no skin in the game other than losing a week of work to go take a bunch of, I mean, smelly freshman boys to camp, right? Took us to camp, and then over the course of that week, faithfully walked with me as I began to understand that the redeeming love of God was not just a nice story that they told in church. No, no, it was the very thing I needed for salvation from my sins, for forgiveness, and for new life. And according to John 10, 10, Jesus came that I might have life and have it abundantly, and I was missing out on it because it was just a story that my parents took me to hear once a week. And that was all because a couple of people took a simple step of faithfulness, self-sacrifice. And man, my life changed. My family is changed because of that. And I think about those folks I've thought about them three of the four times. I baptized three of my four kids here at Mercy Church. And I'm like, I can trace it back to faithfulness. A couple people giving up a week. Seems like nothing. God's, he's wonderful. He's majestic. He's way beyond our understanding that he would use simple steps of faithfulness to bless generations, to bless generations. Listen, let me, let me just close with this reminder of the redeeming love of God for you. There was this, um, British lawyer, his name was William, William Cooper, and he wrote a hymn called There is a Fountain. Um, the last verse says, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. He wrote those words back in 1771. He was battling depression. He had taken up residence with a guy named John Newton, and together they were writing hymns like crazy, just trying to encourage one another and, and walk with one another through life. We sang this in the church that I grew up in, and I never fully appreciated it. I've come around along with several other hymns to fully appreciate the power of them. I want you to hear these words. Um, I want you to believe them. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And then he, he reminds us of the thief. He says, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there have I, though vile as he, washed all my sins away. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. The redeeming love of God is for you. It is here for you today in full. You are not your past. Because of the redeeming love of God, you are not your past. Because of the redeeming love of God, he is with you. If you'll receive it, he is with you here and now. And he will not only bless you, care for you, comfort you according to his purposes, but man, he will do a work through you that will impact generations. The redeeming love of God is for you. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much. 
Thank you for undeserved grace. I always forget to do this when we go into prayer, but you stay in that posture of prayer. I just want to give you a chance to respond. Instead of me just praying for you, let me let you pray. Talk with God. Maybe, Christian, you're that one that the coals were smoldering, but it's been a long time since the flame was really lit. That's what God's doing today in you. I want you to thank God for his redeeming love. Celebrate it right there in your heart and mind. Talk to him. Maybe you need to just hear, and you just need to recite it. In Christ, I'm not my past. Maybe since you came to the Lord, you've wandered out to Moab. You just tell him, God, I'm coming back. Thank you for the story of Ruth that I am not. I'm not chapter one. Doesn't end in bitterness, no. You have redeeming love for me, and I receive it today. I repent of my sin, and I receive it. Thank you, God. You don't even know how everything works out. Some of you are like Ruth. You've come to God's people now. You've never received his forgiveness before. Receive it today. Receive his redeeming love. I promise he will forgive you in full. It's as simple as saying, God, I believe that I am a sinner. I have sinned. I have ran away from you. And I believe Jesus died for my sin. So I receive that forgiveness. What he did for me, I receive that as forgiveness of my sins. Thank you, God, for saving me. Thank you, God, for saving me. God, thank you. Thank you for your grace. We don't deserve it. You are so good. Your redeeming love, so good. May the eyes of our hearts be enlarged today. May we leave here celebrating, thankful that we are made new by the redeeming love of God. Oh, may our theme be redeeming love. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen, why don't you stand with us as we celebrate that redeeming love that only Jesus can give us.